All right, everybody, it is time for another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. But before we dive in to our awesome, awesome guest and conversation today, I want to remind you guys of two things. And the first one is that if you go to Crypto101insider.com, you can join our private community. Here's where we have our model portfolio and all of our top picks. We also have uh, Crypto 101 University. Uh, where we have hours and hours and hours of written and video content that explains blockchain and explains cryptocurrency in a very bite-sized and easy-to-understand way. Uh, and we have a weekly newsletter that goes out and quarterly state of crypto addresses that go out. There is just a ton of value packed into this every which way. So I want you guys first uh, to go to Crypto101insider.com today uh, if you haven't already. I also want to remind you guys that Pizza Mind and I recently just finished a book. Uh, It took 11 months of our lives to write, and we're calling it Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. We walk you through this fascinating world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and it's part history book, it's part instructional guide, and it's going to really show you guys why cryptocurrencies are globally disruptive and how they're going to actually change in real life and in real terms the way that we buy and sell and even live. We include a bunch of how-tos on getting started with your first exchanges. Uh, We give you tips on how to safely buy and sell and store cryptocurrencies, as well as how do we evaluate potentially good cryptocurrencies. And the best part of the book is that we're giving it away for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping and handling. So go to CryptoRevolution.com and pick up your copy today. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Crypto 101. Pizza Mind here. I'm rolling solo. I kicked Bryce out of the booth today for being a bad boy, and I'm never going to tell you why because he'll kill me. So with me today, I have Hart Lambert, the co-founder of UMA. So Hart, welcome to the Crypto 101. Thanks for being my co-host today. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. It's great to have you here because I definitely should not be left alone in front of all this equipment. You never know what might come. So first, let's talk about you. Forget about me, forget about Bryce. You're the star of the show today. How did you wind up here? First of all, I find myself asking myself this question all the time, like, oh my God, how did I get into this crazy world from where I was before? So give us a, an origin story of you, Hart Lambert. How did, what were you doing before crypto and how did you wind up at UMA? The, the classic origin story? Sure. Um, of course, um, we'll start at the beginning. Uh, I'm Canadian. Didn't, I went to school in the States to study computer science. In fact, when I graduated, and I'm old in the crypto space, when I graduated um, in 2005, there was no tech scene in New York whatsoever. And the only place I could get a job here was in finance. And so I ended up as a rates trader, an interest rate trader for eight years at Goldman Sachs uh, through the financial crisis. So I went from being a tech nerd to a computer or to a finance guy. I left in 2013 to start a fintech business focused around wealth management. That business was acquired in 2017. And then I've been full-time in crypto since. Um, so you were just getting wet behind the ears at Goldman Sachs when you got rug pulled. That's <laughs> wild. I had a very cool job through the wild financial crisis uh, as a rates trader, just seeing um, 
interest rate markets, government bonds, like uh, how monetary policy works, a lot of stuff that's actually very relevant to uh, crypto lending markets, crypto derivatives. Uh, I had wild, yeah, upbringing uh, in my golden days of just crazy market volatility and some total mayhem. Now, where are you from in Canada? <laughs> um, all over. Uh, I've all got, over. Um, yeah, a parent in Toronto and Vancouver, one each, and I was born in Edmonton in the middle. So, okay. all over. So, do you have a hockey team or do you just hate hockey? Because no matter what answer you give, you're going to make enemies. <laughs> well, I can give a great answer because I grew up in Edmonton, like as a little kid during mm. their their the Gretzky dynasty era. Wow. So I think that's a that's a fair fair thing to pick. But uh, you know, I don't even think most of your viewers listeners know where Edmonton is. So, well, they better figure it out because you're a man that's associated with dynasty. So you've got the Edmonton Oilers <laughs> dynasty, then you went to the dynasty of Goldman Sachs. And now you're building another one at UMA. This was a coin that popped up out of nowhere on Coinbase one day. And people were like, what is this thing? And, you know, just well, who's backing this? And oh, my God, how have I not heard of this before? This is a freaking juggernaut that is just quietly building under the radar. Maybe not so much under the radar anymore. So what exactly are you building and what problems are you solving? Well, I like that introduction because we are sort of under the radar by design. We really are an infrastructure. We're trying to build infrastructure for to make it to make it easy for developers to write decentralized financial contracts. And we did exist before DeFi was a term, where DeFi really hasn't been a term for very long, so it's all very fresh. But we are under the radar because of this developer and infrastructure focused focus. We're we're not a consumer facing project in the same way you know, compound and Uniswap are. And the core idea here is crypto enables us to write contracts between individuals, between entities um, without legal recourse and financial contra- contracts for any sort of financial payout. And they're international and global and crypto native and internet native by default, um, but they're not easy to write. And there's lots of complexities around the financial engineering behind them and then how you enforce them. So at its core level, uh, what UMA does is we make it easy for developers to create financial contracts. And we started with this concept of synthetic tokens. So these are uh, crypto tokens to track anything. Um, And we can go into more detail on that too. Yeah. What do you mean by a synthetic token exactly? And what is it? This can be pegged to... A real-world asset that has price movements or something even beyond that? Yeah. So let's just suppose we want to do a, a contract between the two of us, and we want to bet on uh, the price of Bitcoin. Well, let's pick, let's pick something real-world. We want to bet on the price of gold. We can write an agreement where we bet on the price of gold, and we can do this all using crypto, all using economic incentives and the blockchain to enforce this mechanism. That's, that's really what we do. That's our expertise. And then one side of that agreement, one side of this bet can be a token, um, an ERC-20 token. And that token will go up and down with the price of gold and, and move it and track it. And this token is what we call a synthetic token because it's not really gold. It's just uh, a token that represents and is valued at the price of gold over time. Makes sense. So you guys are building the underpinning infrastructure for this 
not necessarily the UX UI where you and I could just go easily enter something. That would be for another developer, correct? That's right. That's our focus is we're trying to okay. build the contracting mechanisms, uh, the financial engineering, and ultimately the enforcement mechanism. So we have a particular, particular type of Oracle system that is uh, extremely flexible and can kind of pro- can provide secure price data on anything. Um, and that's core to our overall uh, infrastructure as well. Got it. So let's backtrack a little bit. You use the term financial contracts. What all could that entail besides just a bet between you and I? Yeah, uh, financial contracts are kind of everything. That's where, that's why I think DeFi is so exciting. Take a look at anything, anything financial services related. It's all relates back down ultimately to a legal contract, traditional financial services. So if you want to buy insurance or get insurance on your house or property, that's literally a legal contract. That's a type of financial contract where there's a payout if a bad thing happens to your property. Uh, If you want to derivatives or financial betting on, on price things is an obvious example of a financial derivative. That's a financial contract. Even your brokerage account, even your Robinhood account that holds your stocks, ultimately, like you don't own your stocks. Uh, Robinhood does. You have a legal contract, a sort of financial contract with Robinhood that says, hey, they're going to pay you out these stocks um, when you want them. So all of the world of financial services, of traditional financial services, distills back to uh, financial contracts and uh, this concept of like legal recourse. Uh, so you can sue somebody if you don't get what you're owed. What we're doing, right, is well, what's the problem with that? Like, what's the issue with this? I mean, I'd actually argue traditional financial services can work pretty well if you're in the U.S. or if you're in somewhere with like high, uh, with a well-developed uh, uh, financial ecosystem. But it's inherently not global by nature. Um, if you go and you start a fintech business in the U.S. To provide even Robinhood is a good example. Robinhood can't offer their services to people in other parts of the world because everything about Robinhood is related back to being enforced in like the US legal infrastructure. And so DeFi now is taking that concept and saying, hey, let's make this uh, internet native. Let's make this be accessible to anybody with an internet connection and access to digital money. And now all of a sudden, it's um, reimagining financial services that are not enforced by legal recourse but are enforced by blockchain and economic incentives. And that allows or enables uh, financial services to be offered on a global basis, uh, which I think is like wildly cool and is uh, an inevitability. It's, it's something that's going to happen. Yeah. And just to further touch on that point, I visited Brazil uh, earlier this year and I was talking with one of the locals there and they were telling me that they had a hair salon and they couldn't be open for business because of COVID restrictions for weeks at a time. And they're very worried about losing their house, losing their business. They couldn't afford to pay the lease. And I said, well, you can't get a temporary loan from the bank or some other lender. And they're like, we don't have that here. They just don't. There's no payday loans. You can't refinance a mortgage. You can't get a business loan from private or government. It just doesn't exist. So it was a very, very stressful time. And Brazil's like the sixth largest com- country in the world. We're not talking about someone down to like the hundreds or two hundreds. This is number six. And they don't even have these kinds of services. 
It's so crazy. what you're building it, is super, super important. Financial inclusion for all is a, a big mission of mine as well. So I'm glad that I'm not alone and I've got one of the smartest guys in the world, uh, another Goldman Sachs alumni helping me out because I couldn't build this. I couldn't do the math. So thank you for taking that one off my plate. <laughs> but um, what financial services do you see in demand most uh, around the world? I mean, you, your platform's super flexible. It can do pretty much anything. Is there one niche over another that you see more demand or early growth? Yeah, well, I, I think you need to think about uh, crypto like the early days of the internet. Um, and if you go back to the early days of the internet, it, it wasn't just a bunch of uh, nerds that like wanted to like read Time magazine on the internet. That's not what you did. It was like very self-referential. It's like where people were on the internet talking about the internet, using the internet. And I think the stage of crypto we're at is still very much the same thing. And you probably you see this with like the guests on your show and the projects in the space. Right now, uh, crypto is interested in trading crypto, lending crypto, borrowing crypto, doing things with crypto. It's crypto talking about crypto and building um, crypto on crypto. So um, I, I, I think it's actually natural that right now the stage of um, the development of of the technology in the industry is that crypto is working on building tooling to make better financial contracts for crypto. Um, and that's where I think the growth is right now. So we're actually very interested in one of the project products we just launched is something called range tokens. And this is an ability for a DAO, uh, uh, the treasury of another crypto project, it's an ability for them to use their project tokens as collateral to borrow against uh, their own project token. And this to me, um, some very cool kind of analogies to uh, how companies could finance themselves. Um, that this, this looks like a crypto native way for a DAO to uh, borrow money. And I think this is the type of thing that we see a lot of traction in. It's um, helping crypto companies do crypto things. It's all quite self-referential, but this is just the path to us building the tooling, building the infrastructure, building all the mechanisms that will let us bring these technologies to real world use cases in the future. And that's really critical because as a founder of a crypto company, you usually have to lock away your own share of tokens to convince other investors that you're not going to dump them and run off with all the money. That's just how it is. But if you have a five-year vesting period, no doubt there's going to be a bear market you're going to have to survive through. You need to sell some tokens to pay your own rent, put food on your table. Now, if there's a way to lend those tokens and get stable coins in return, uh, everyone's happy. So that's an amazing innovation that you've built there that affects every other founder in crypto. So well done. Well, thanks, man. I mean, generally speaking, if you just think about... Um, Think about the need for companies, traditional companies, to write contracts, contracts related to financial payouts to do things. It could be like vesting agreements for new employees. Um, it could be earnout agreements or partnership agreements with other companies. Um, it could be agreements to uh, borrow or lend against uh, your cash flow. Um, all those things need to exist for internet native companies, which are DAOs. And so if we imagine we invent a contracting language or a method where we can write all of those financial contracts 
uh, in a crypto native way, that seems that seems important. Um, and so that's one of the things we're really excited about right now. Now there's a potential dark cloud. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, that's hanging over this thing. And I want to address it as well. And that's Ethereum. You guys are built on Ethereum, like almost everything else in the space is. And we saw Ethereum slow down to an absolute crawl earlier this year. Many uh, projects were forced to either go out of business or migrate to a side chain or some kind of layer two. What was your thought process going through all that madness? And if this next Ethereum update doesn't fix these gas problems, uh, what are you going to do? So, I mean, off um, the record, like it's not a binding contract, but you know, just tell us your thoughts. Totally. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Ethereum believer. Um, I just have a feel, I have a view that people have designed their systems on Ethereum, uh, not the most efficient way possible. So <laughs> we actually, the, the whole way our technology works um, is, is via an optimistic design. So we have, I don't want to go like too nerdy, but we've designed our entire mechanisms to effectively assume the right things are happening and only do transactions on chain when something bad happens, which is designed to be really rare. And the inspiration here is if um, if you've heard of optimistic rollups or if your users heard of optimistic rollups, one of these like scaling technologies uh, for Ethereum and for other um, blockchains, optimistic rollups uh, adopt a similar premise where you assume things are good and it's very costly for something to be bad, um, but it saves you all this work. It saves you all these tra transactions and executions because of this uh, sort of fundamental assumption. That idea is built into our own infrastructure. We actually call our Oracle system the optimistic Oracle. And we minimize uh, complicated transactions by assuming things are right um, and only doing transactions when something bad happens. So this is a really nerdy answer to your version of like, we got a lot of um, room to grow here. We got a lot of room to do smarter, more intelligent things about how we even use Ethereum. And those things are also emerging in scaling technologies like all these layer two or side chains. So I think, I think what you're seeing here is there's demand for um, uh, blockchains like Ethereum. There's so much demand that it's outstripped its native transaction capacity, but people are figuring it out. And I do really think that Ethereum scalability um, is becoming a solved problem. And we're looking forward to like rosy days ahead.
you just mentioned uh, you guys can handle everything unless something goes wrong. Can you give us an example of something that's gone wrong and how settling on chain can, I assume, correct that? Or do you need to settle on chain just to find out what went wrong? Yeah, well, let's just say that um, we can keep it abstract and say Bob and Alice agree to some contract. They agree to something. It could be insurance. It could be a derivative. It doesn't really matter what they agree to. Bob and Alice agree to some contract. and. Uh, we write that contract at the time they agree to it on chain, like a single time. And in that contract, Bob and Alice actually lock in some money, their collateral of whatever this payout should be. And now it goes to the end of the contract and there's a payout that has to happen. And it's written what that payout should be. And Bob has to pay Alice or is supposed to pay Alice something. And he just goes and does that. We're done. That's the happy case. Nothing happens. We only, something bad happens is Bob goes and pays Alice the wrong amount or says he doesn't want to pay Alice or something like that. That's the bad case. And so our whole thinking here, this whole kind of optimistic thinking is like, just make it painful for Bob to cheat. If you just make it painful for Bob to cheat, he has an incentive to do the right thing all the time. And he will do the right thing all the time because it'll cost him something if he doesn't. And in doing so, you reduce executions, you reduce the number of transactions, you reduce the amount of work you have to do on the blockchain. You only really do the work if Bob tries to cheat. And the parallel or the analogy here that might be useful for your listeners is just to go back to the traditional legal system, where Bob and Alice could write a legal contract under the laws of the state of Wyoming, picking a random state. Uh, They could write a legal contract. And both of them hope that they don't have to sue each other. Like suing each other is costly and expensive. And as long as they follow the terms of the contract, they don't need to sue each other. There's no judge or jury or court system involved. It's only in the bad case that they have to go through this expensive litigation process. Um, Same concepts. And so I think a lot of these concepts are increasingly being applied to blockchains to minimize the amount of work done on chain and actually do more of the logic and more of the computation off-chain. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense now that you explain it. So I appreciate that. Um, So let's look towards the future of Ethereum and uh, capital markets that are being rebuilt. There's many different projects that are trying to rebuild everything in the traditional world, in the crypto world, where it's permissionless, open globally. Are we making any good progress on that? Are we maybe 10% there? Are we 90% there? How much more that exists on the Goldman Sachs trading floor still has to get ported over to crypto and built. Oh man. We're like, not like not even 0.1% there. It's just, but it's, it's just the scale here. It's like, you see a hundred billion dollars locked in DeFi. It sounds like a big number. It's tiny. It's tiny, tiny on the scale of our our global markets. It's, it's just nothing. Um, The, tools for modern finance, we are very, very far away from having the infrastructure and the tooling um, and the recourse and the the security uh, for us to be able to run a global financial system on a blockchain. Um, But everything we're doing right now shows, is sort of proving that it is the obvious future. And, you know, people talk about DeFi as the future of finance. I'm one of those people. This very clearly is the future of finance to me. It has all these advantages as a 
more efficient form of writing financial contracts. And again, my core thesis is all of finance is financial contracts. So if we have a technology that lets us write better financial contracts, that will win. But man, we got a lot of a lot of work to do to make these things uh, credible. And, and I mean, again, it should take time. You know, you don't want uh, our, our parents' pension funds all based on DeFi until it's really proven and we know that it's going to last, you know, the next hundred years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What are some markets? Like you mentioned, you are an interest rate trader. That's not something the average person does ever in their life. You might not even know you can trade interest rates. What are some other things like that, that a professional, traditional trader or financial manager has access to that hasn't even begun to be built in crypto yet? That is a very good question. I think, generally speaking, uh, derivative markets um, don't really exist in crypto yet outside of these retail-facing um, uh, like perpetual swaps, um, things like that, which aren't really designed for institutional finance. But I think all kinds of more sophisticated uh, derivative markets, I think a lot of options markets, uh, so call and put options or volatility, markets for structured products. There's like finance is uh, annoying in its uh, breadth of financial products that exists, and I think uh, I think the list, the laundry list of of things that need to come into the space are are is pretty huge. But part of the reason, what one of the big differences here is most of traditional finance is geared towards institutional investors. So it's big institution to big institution doing financial transactions. Um, All of crypto is not geared that way. There's nothing really institutional in crypto at all outside of a few hedge funds that are venture capitalists that are playing in the space. So the big kind of transformation here is what does institutional decentralized finance look like? And what has to be created for that to happen? And frankly, when I talk about these range tokens and these products we're building for DAOs to uh, borrow against a project token, we're uh, kind of touching touching along that. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see how institutional decentralized finance evolves. Are there any leaders that are trying to pioneer that way right now that are gaining any traction that you're aware of? You know, this, this idea of uh, treasury management for DAOs, for crypto native DAOs, is a very new idea that's actually quite uh, quite popular at the moment. And I mean, in this crypto sell-off we're seeing right here, where DAOs are losing two-thirds of their value, the treasuries are losing two-thirds of their value, it's sort of really highlighting how much of a need there is for these DAOs to manage their treasuries better, to diversify them, and to do useful things with those project tokens. But I think this is a very, like, uh, that this particular concept uh, is very new, and I don't think there's any clear leaders simply because this wasn't a problem a year ago. A year ago, a DAO was just an idea. It literally didn't exist. In There's no DAO with a billion-dollar treasury a year ago, and now there's a whole bunch of them. Treasuries are a lot smaller the last couple of days, but um, there's a whole bunch of them that exist now. So I don't really think there is a clear leader in the space, and what we'd like UMA's role to be is just tooling to help build products, build financial products uh, that help DAOs better manage their treasury uh, and do useful things with their project tokens. Sounds good. 
I think we're at the point in the crypto industry where we've pretty much got enough layer ones. We've got people like yourselves that are working on that aspect. I mean, we've got Ethereum, of course, and several others to choose from. And now it's just about attracting developers and other entrepreneurs to build on your platform. What's your strategy of getting a developer to pick you guys over somebody else? So uh, developers are everything. I think uh, I, I agree with you 100% on that. Two, how do you get developers to pick you? Well, you offer them um, an easy to use infrastructure that they, where they can do something they can't do anywhere else. That's one thing. Um, and we've made a lot of progress on being able to design financial contracts that you really can't easily write other places. Um, and uh, the other thing we've done is we've played a lot with um, developer incentives. So you've heard of like liquidity mining and yield farming. Um, we've attempted to build some similar incentive structures to attract developers. Um, and we called it developer mining, where we've actually paid out rewards uh, in our project token to developers for doing useful things um, in the that advance the project itself. Um, and that's been really, really an interesting experiment to uh, attract more developers and get them more interested um, in what we're doing when uh, the space is so noisy right now and there's so much going on. It's been it's been a cool, a cool experiment to, to run. So kind of like you've got a contract where a developer could submit a merge request on GitHub and if it gets accepted, they get paid out or something like that. This uh, this particular example uh, that we the experiment we've played with, we saw which addresses deployed contracts uh, using our system, so deployed synthetic tokens, and we paid out rewards based on the total value locked in those synthetic tokens. That's cool. so. If you, yeah, it's a really cool concept, um, and we're evolving it right now uh, to something. Again, these are all our, our, our nerdy inventions, something we're calling KPI options. So we are actually creating contracts that have milestones built into them. And we're giving developers these Ethereum, these ERC-20 contracts um, that we again call a KPI option that will pay out more rewards based on that developer achieving certain milestones. And if you think about it, it's just, it is like entering into a contract in, tradi in the traditional world. But this is the tokenized crypto native version of it. Um, and it's it's pretty cool. That's really brilliant. I mean, it's really just like a developer contract when they hit certain milestones, part of their payment gets unlocked and you've just automated the whole process. So brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So I'd love to uh, talk to you for another nine hours, but um, I know you don't, you've got more important things to do. So one final question before we let you go, give some advice to someone who's new in the crypto space. Maybe this is their first podcast they're listening to. They've heard a lot of things that have melted their brains, but just at a high level, what's some good advice that you can give people? Not financial advice or legal advice, but just to try and help them navigate this wild west. That is a hard question because the space is so overwhelming right now. I think my advice would probably be don't get overwhelmed by the space. Don't think you need to know all this stuff. Just, just there's too much going on for any one person uh, to stay on top of. So 
pick a credible project, join their community, um, and try to try to understand what their goal is. Find a project that has a mission aligned with kind of has a good vibe, uh, mission aligned with like what you uh, what you like, believe in, are interested in. Join their community, and um, I'd go deep on uh, on uh, one project rather than trying to spread yourself too thin in this crazy industry. Well said. And I always tell people, uh, finding people that are mission focused rather than product focused will lead you to more success. Products are going to come and go all the time and replace each other, but missions will last forever. So Hart, thank you so much for being on the same mission as I am, bringing financial inclusion to the entire world. So where can people follow you on Twitter or BitClout or wherever uh, you'd like to send them? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Hal2001, H-A-L-2001. And the project uh, is uh, UMA Protocol, or is at UMA Protocol on Twitter, UMA Protocol. All right, thank you so much. All right, guys, we will see you next week with another great guest. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.